0: Gracias.
1: In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the Three Jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the Three Jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the Three Jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path to omniscience. May these arise in a clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Kiki so-so! Okay, so uh, tonight we go through another couple of the texts, of the six texts on reasoning by Nagarjuna. And um, I don't know about you, but I find it a little bit difficult going through these texts and a little bit uh, uh, frustrating. Like, uh, they seem very archaic and formulaic and stilted, hard to understand, and um, there's not a lot of path to them. And, um, so I think, uh, going right to the source text alone, while it's really, I think it's great to get a initial overview of them, like the way we're doing. I think the, the best way to study Nagarjuna is to dive into one of the texts that has a commentary by an, uh, a um, contemporary Tibetan teacher or near-contemporary com- Tibetan teacher and where they go through and they unpack the text in their characteristic style. Um, so there's a number of number of his texts, fortunately at this point, unlike years ago, but at this point there's a number of his uh, texts that have been translated and made available in fairly decent translations with uh, commentaries. A lot of the translations we find of Nagarjuna are very uh, archaic language, stilted, very scholarly, like um, uh, the older ones, those sort of books where you open it up and there's like a couple of lines of translation and then the rest of the page is footnotes and that's <laughs> a little bit daunting um but uh there's now a very good translation of uh the 70 verses in english along with the commentary by galupa geshe sonam Rinchen, uh nagarjuna's 70 stanzas and I'll, i'm working on a, a Little list of all these texts for you, because I know you're dying to read more of these texts on the Garshana. If anyone wants to help me, let me know. Uh, We already looked at uh, Jan Westerhoff's excellent translation of the Vigraha Vyavartini. Dispeller of Doubts is a great one. You don't get the uh, Tibetan teacher translation, but um, there's a translation of the 60 verses, which we go through tonight along with Chantra Kirti's commentary that's been, came out like in the last two years. That looks like one of the most substantial ways to go through one of his substantial texts. Uh, there's always the Karl Braunholzl and praise of Dharma which is Nagarjuna's most controversial text, where he uh, basically uh, gives a uh, teaching on the third turning into the wheel of the Dharma and, uh, focuses on the luminous nature of mind. And, uh, we have the third Karmapas commentary on that. And, um, then there's these letters. Is it
2: true that that, that text is m- many Western scholars don't regard that to be written by the same author as the, as the text we've looked at in this class?
1: Yes, totally. Uh, Yes, we went into this a little bit in the first class, but um, many many Western scholars are extremely skeptical about the attribution of most of the texts that you will see attributed to Nagarjuna. And then the Tibetan, what's called the Tenjur, the collection of the teachings by Indian pundits. There's probably like 30 or so, texts attributed to Nagarjuna and Western scholars accept probably about four or five of those. <laughs> and uh, they totally dismiss the the, the uh, praise to Dhatu as couldn't possibly be the same Nagarjuna. Um, and th- there's also a text by Nagarjuna called The Five Stages, which is the fundamental text on uh, tantra in the what's called the new translation school of tantric systems, and um, so there's there's a huge range of texts attributed to Nagarjuna by the Tibetans that Western scholars just completely dismiss, including one of the texts tonight, the uh, uh, pulverizing the categories or whatever, however you want to translate that. The second text tonight is. Is dismissed by most scholars as not being by Nagarjuna. It's just sort of both interesting and disappointing, and also relieving because the text is not that interesting. <laughs> Doesn't talk about emptiness at all, and it's just like a hodgepodge of odd topics, and it's sort of bizarre. Um, there's a, uh, so so uh, as I mentioned last week when we went through the Ratnavali the uh, Precious Garland, which was a text of uh, a teaching for a king. There's another two letters that he's written to kings. Uh, one's called Letter to a Friend, and then one's called Letter to a King. And um, those, like the Ratnavoli, are much more um, accessible. They present like an overview of the Mahayana teaching and the Mahayana path and um, uh, much more like of a a progression in the text and coherence of topics and uh, how those topics are addressed. And so there's um, a translation of Nagarjuna's letter to a friend along with a commentary by Mipam. Which seems interesting. Looks interesting. It's translated, in a book called Golden Zephyr, and uh, then in particular, there's there's one called Nagarjuna's letter to a friend that has a commentary by a uh, rinpoché named named Conjure Rinpoché Kagyu Rinpoché. Um, I think he's the the second most recent conjurer so he died in like the 1990s or something. But um, he's, he's quite, he was quite a good, uh, well-known and respected teacher. And so that's like uh, probably the most accessible. And it presents an overview of the Mahayana, the six paramitas, with an extensive pres- prep- uh, presentation Excuse me, of uh, meditation and wisdom. Um, so, uh, in terms of like what you might look at next, if you're interested in looking at such things, I would, I would go for the Precious Garland, or the Letter to a Friend with the the commentary. Either of those with the commentary of a Tibetan. And so, um, in a in a book that's referred to in our book, which I've now lost in my sea of Nagarjuna books here. So starting tonight with the second text, because I want to go through the first one in detail. We'll just read through the first one, but I sort of want to uh, just look at the second one briefly. So on page 70 of our text summary of the pulverizing the categories, Dahlia Prakarna. And uh, what is this text about? Let's look at the bottom of the page. We have the uh, the first stanza in order to put an end to the arrogance of those logicians i'm on page 79 again who out of conceit regarding their knowledge are keen to debate i shall grind them to little pieces (laughs) i don't know how how, anyone else picked up on that but I thought that was weird, <laughs> and it reminded me of, like, a Game of Thrones and the various ways that uh, people were tortured in the Middle Ages, and maybe even still today, but it's just bizarre. Um, it is said that although all who dispute matters of reasoning assume 16 categories as being beyond doubt, so he's... Um, Looking at a, a standardized system of reasoning that is presented in one of the so-called Hindu traditions of the Nyayakas and uh, attacking that, um, it is said that all who dispute matters of reason in assuming sixteen categories as being beyond doubt. I'm sorry, assume 16 categories. Since we advocates of emptiness do not adhere to any thesis, we don't accept any of the 16 nyaya categories. So then up above, in the opening paragraph, he says this text, which also has a prose commentary, involves the Madhyamaka rejection of the 16 categories of reasoning systematized in Hindu nyaya tradition as ultimately real rather than merely conventionally real. And so we see the 16 identified throughout the text, and uh, it's just like a hodgepodge of categories, means and objects of correct knowledge. That's, you know, so few of them, like, are ones that you would expect to see on a text on reasoning. Doubt, the purpose of action, the use of examples, established beliefs, Members of an inference, a logical inference, reasoning, reasoning, ascertainment, debate, discussion, and altercation. Uh, the, the mere appearance of a reason. And number fourteen was my personal favorite: quibbles. I don't know if you guys noticed that one, but I really like that. We have spoken of all the categories, yet, in your opinion, they're not real. This is on page 87. My refutation is not a quibble. <laughs> I, I'm just dying to, like, find what the Sanskrit for quibble is. Whatever has been said by me as a refutation is at the level as you treat the categories themselves. Anyway, uh, points of defeat and conclusion. I skipped irrelevant rejoinders. Okay, but back to that first page of um, pulverizing the categories. He says, according to Christian Lind Lindner and Linter, sorry, was one of the first scholars to publish a a book that was a collection of different texts by Nagarjuna in a a format manageable to non-scholars not, you know, with two lines of text and the rest footnotes for the remainder of the page. And he published first a book called Nagarjunya, quaint name, Nagarjunya, and then a a revised version of that by Dharma Publishing called um, Master of Wisdom. So he says, and in that text he goes through a, a discussion of which text can validly be accepted as being by Nagarjuna. He says, This text has not received the attention, its historical importance and enjoyment, i uh, sorry, enjoyable style entitle it to, It has a wit and virtuosity. I don't know if you picked up on the, the wit and the virtuosity and what we have in our book, but not met with elsewhere in Nagarjuna's writings. But this may be because Nagarjuna did not write it. (laughs) In other words, Nagarjuna does not usually employ wit and virtuosity. Fernando Tola and Carmen Dragonetti, the famous Italian Buddhist scholars, have questioned its authenticity. So, they basically dismiss it as being Nagarjuna's for various reasons I'll come to. The principal problems are that the opponents in the text, well, he gives one version of this, I'll uh, redo another version from Dragonetti and Tolo themselves. But they give um, a nice little overview of, the, of these two texts. So they say, the Shunyotasattati, sorry, the uh, 70 verses. Uh, so we had the 70 verses last week along with the Precious Garland. It says that differs from uh, a certain text by Aryadeva and the 60 verses, in the form in which it treats the central theme of emptiness. The first treatise, the 70 verses, starts from the analysis of a concrete and determined object. So I'm reading from a book that you guys don't have, probably. Uh, It's called On Voidness, a study on Buddhist nihilism, or nihilism, by Tolo and Dragon Neti. The first, the 70 verses, starts from the analysis of a concrete and determined object, the rope-slash-snake, of the empirical reality and applies the result it obtains to the whole of that reality. Presumably the result it obtains being that uh, they're empty of inherent nature. It establishes the universal universal rather conditionness and contingency the emptiness of all and as a consequence the illusory character of the empirical reality in its totality we have in the universalization of the principle we have in it the universalization of the principle of emptiness to all uh, in other words to all phenomena The 60 verses, on the other hand, maintains itself in a theoretical and logical level without doing an analysis of the material world concretely considered. It limits itself to the analysis of the categories which rule in the world, causality, time, etc., and destruction, non-being. The 70 verses like the 60 maintains itself in a theoretical level but differs from it in that it submits to analysis numerous categories of the empirical reality. Birth, permanence, destruction, production, cause, existence, non-existence, name us, our time, action, perception, knowledge, object of knowledge, ignorance, etc. The analysis throws as a result the conditionness, the relativity the absence of an own being as the essential characteristic of all these categories and as a consequence of that, the unreality, the logical impossibility, and the illusory character of their existence. From the examination of these particular cases, it is deduced that the totality of existence is empty and unreal. So, I don't know if that was helpful. I found it slightly helpful in, in distinguishing between the 70 verses and the 60 verses. So, there was a place here that I f- failed to mark where he discusses why he cons- they consider that it's not by Nagarjuna. Let's see if I can find it quickly. Sorry about that. Anyway, it had to, it had to do with uh, time, the time period of things that are discussed in the text. This uh, sixteen points seems to have appeared later in the historical record than the life of Nagarjuna by a few hundred, thousand, uh, by a few hundred rather years so okay so back to our book nagarjuna by richard jones with the blue um cover matte. is that a matte finish a blue matte finish eggshell 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 finish. sort of like matt ludmer right On page 74, we have a summary of the 60 verses on argument, yukti, shastikas. Linder describes this work collection of aphorisms loosely tied together by a common subject matter, dependent arising. It's interesting that the Italian gentleman didn't mention that. Clearly, this is totally focused on dependent arising. The guardian attempts to demonstrate the dependent arising in the wheel of rebirth by means of argument rather than by appeal to scripture or special experience as evidence. So uh, various forms of uh, valid uh, validating something as being true or not direct experience through the senses is the most. Commonly trusted way of validating something as true, even though we know the senses can be deceiving. Um, Scripture is often taken as a source of valid validation. And uh, special experience, Uh, spiritual experience, um, mathematical revelation. Uh, graduating from high school, major experiences like transformative experiences like that, right? Passing your driver's ed tests, <laughs> taking ayahuasca, I, I don't know, whatever, you know, various things. Um, and then inference reasoning is the fourth. So traditionally there are these four types of Possible avenues of validating something as true or not, and and Dharmakirti and Dignaga are famous for having whittled that down to two: direct perception and inference. Anyway, um, so he uses reasoning, Nagarjuna, i.e., inference, instead of scripture and and special. Revelation, and he does this by simply drawing out the consequences he sees from his opponent's principles, as usual. M. O. Lintner gives this argument in sum, in sum, rather, reality as it truly is is free of all ontological and conceptual dualities, while the conventional world of origins and destructions is illusory, and merely due to the root ignorance. Presumably he means that when he says it is merely due to the root ignorance, presumably he means our experience of the world in that way is due to our root ignorance. It is this ignorance that subjects us to the tyranny of mental afflictions and suffering. The Gajna focuses on showing that birth and cessation are not true realities. There is no self-existent birth or destruction or truly existent. He also argues that entities in general are neither real, as in Swabhava metaphysics, nor totally non-existent. The two extremes but are merely illusory mental fabrications that we create and that the illusions hold is overcome by knowledge. And that's the basic definition of Buddhism, right? What's the simplest definition of, explanation of Buddhism when your friends ask you, what is Buddhism? Any, any situation?
3: I'm stealing from Suzuki Roshi. Everything changes.
1: Okay. Thank you. Anyone else?
4: Things are not what we believe they are. <clears throat> Things are not what we believe they are.
1: Excellent things are now what we believe. Are. Uh, these these are both statements of the of the nature of things. Whereas I'm asking you, what does Buddhism bring to the table? Food, dessert, maybe dessert or something to drink. Which come to think of it, we're supposed to be doing tonight. We're celebrating. I don't know about you guys. I have two types of chocolate. I have licorice and i have blueberries
3: I, I didn't hear my doorbell ring somehow with the delivery though
1: it, it was through the window
3: <laughs> thank you so, so can you repeat your question
1: What? how would you describe the essence of buddhism in 25 words or less
3: because yeah, actually it was, it was actually I, somebody was talking about this earlier in the day that's why i brought it up when asked about you know, collapsing all of Buddhism into a nutshell, that, that's what Suzuki Roshi apparently
2: said. Anyone else? The, the 16th Karmapa made a very similar statement when asked by a member of Congress um, how, how to define Buddhism.
1: What does he say?
2: I believe he said everything changes.
3: Yeah, I've heard it's been said by more than one, obviously. I just was remembering this particular one. But I think you're right. It's come up in many cases as the sort of consolidated little pith. But obviously that's not the one that Derek's looking for.
1: (laughs) So the one I'm looking for is uh, overcoming ignorance by wisdom, through wisdom. is what Buddhism is all about. You know, as opposed to like Buddhism being a statement about the nature of reality, Buddhism is includes a ground path and fruition.
3: So you're talking about anyway, an influence its influence on
5: a person. I, what what it can but, do. But even the even ground
1: path and fruition.
5: Wasn't wasn't it even stated in this reading, um, the sixty verses, um, at the very end. Uh, I think he says merit and wisdom. Yeah, gotta Derek, have both. Derek, did Which you is, say
6: through or by? Oh, sorry, Kevin.
5: Sorry, Bye. sorry. sorry. By. Uh, I mean, okay. You know, I I think most people commonly would think of Buddhism as you know compassion and merit, uh, as as we use that word merit, but um, most people don't think of Buddhism as emptiness or um you know alternative thoughts about reality really that's not not very common no i don't think that's the common notion i think the common notion is these are people who try to be compassionate in everything they do Mm -hmm. and that's all the general public understands but
2: but But, uh, i'm not um, really sure there's the, the, well, like 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 Joe on the bus's opinion should be authoritative about what. No, I, I mean, have I, you, have you seen the quotes before. that they put on the posters? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting it is. I'm
5: just suggesting what is.
3: But but I I would say that ultimately it does boil down to wisdom because even you know as many teachers will say that if you. Understand if you realize emptiness the compassion comes naturally from that and so therefore essentially the the uh, Emptiness or wisdom aspect is the sort of root
1: Okay, well something to consider So let's dive in on 74 in the bottom the de- dedication the Gajna pays homage to the Buddha the Lord of the silent ones interesting episode who proclaimed dependent arising, even though he was silent, he proclaimed dependent arising the principle by which origin and ceasing are eliminated. Instead of the, the the principle which explains or arising and ceasing, it's the principle by which arising and ceasing are eliminated. And Chris is putting up the the famous image of the silent The legend that the Buddha remained silent and held up a flower, and only one person in the audience got it, and broke out laughing, well, smile. Those whose awareness has gone beyond it is, and it is not, and thus is free from clinging, perceive clearly the profound nature of conditions that conditions are free of any support in the objective world. That is, they do not grasp any entities as real. The Garjana says that the doctrine of it is not the source of all errors, which is interesting, you would think, sort of think that it is is the source of all errors, but it is not, is the source of all errors, has already been eliminated. If you read his other book, And he now is going to present an argument that eliminates the doctrine of, it is. If entities were in fact real, then why isn't their absence accepted to be liberation from the cycle of rebirths? But there is no liberation through entities or through their absence. Rather, liberation comes only through the thorough knowledge of the nature of entities and the absence of entities. Those who do not see reality imagine there is the cycle of rebirth and there is nirvana. But those who see reality do not imagine either that the cycle or nirvana is real. Becoming and nirvana, these two are not to be found. Indeed, the thorough knowledge of becoming is said to be nirvana. The wise, interesting the thorough knowing of uh, the thorough knowledge of becoming. And uh, becoming is one of the things that um, is not real in the last sentence. So, thorough knowledge of what is not real. The wise consider the cessation of an arisen entity when it is destroyed the same way that they consider the cessation of something illusory. It was illusory to begin with. The unenlightened imagined cessation as the destruction of a real, self-existent, arisen entity. This is referring to the uh, discussion about how does, how does destruction happen? How do things fade away? We, we understand that you promote uh, radical impermanence, that things are arising and dis- disappearing instantaneously, or at least at some time. So how do they disappear? Things may appear to cease by being destroyed, rather than their compound nature being fully understood. But who actually experiences such destruction? Trick question. And how can destruction be possible? That is, if an entity is real, it is indestructible. If it is empty, nothing real is destroyed. If the uh, objection, objection, Your Honor, if the aggregates do not cease, one is not nirvanized. That was probably the funniest thing in the book, of the entire book. Nirvanized. That's not. That's not acceptable. I think. <laughs> that's that's a degradation. I, I'm ashamed of Mr. Jones for having used that term, nirvanized. <laughs> it's like pasteurized. Anyway, I'll leave my projections at home. Oh, I am at home. Ah. Uh, the aggregates don't cease, one is not nirvanized, even when one's afflictions are destroyed. So are you saying that only when the aggregates cease is one liberated? So this is an interesting argument in that um, this person is saying, even if the afflictions are destroyed, if one still has the aggregates, one's not in nirvana. And this is the view of the early tradition of Buddhism, is that one doesn't achieve full nirvana until one passes away from existence, i.e. dies, kicks the bug. And then one is without aggregates, whereas in the Mahayana the idea is what's called um, unfixed nirvana, where nirvana does not depend on whether illusory things like aggregates or whatever are present or not. So, anyway, the subjector says, Uh, One is not nirvanized even when one's afflictions are destroyed because the aggregates still exist. So are you saying that only when the aggregates cease is one liberated? It's a little bit unclear who's objecting to whom here, but uh, when one sees with the correct knowledge that what arises is dependent upon rude ignorance as its condition, then neither birth nor cessation are perceived at all as real entities. Thus is nirvana in this very life, sorry, this is nirvana in this very life, and one has done what was to be done. This is a famous phrase going back to the earliest days of Buddhism where the Buddha says, I've done what is to be done. I've accomplished the noble pursuit, the paramartha, the highest goal. Uh, If after knowing the Buddhist doctrine, however, differentiation still occur, then those who imagine that even the most subtle entity arises, do not see the meaning of dependent arising. If after knowing the Buddhist doctrine, however, differentiation still occur, then those who imagine that even the most subtle entity arises, does not See the meaning of dependent arising. It's worded a little bit confusingly, but I think the idea is uh, that seeing the arising of um, imagining that their subtle entities are the differentiations, and so those people do not see dependent arising truly. Objection: If the cycle of rebirths comes to an end when afflictions have ceased. Why have the fully enlightened Buddhas denied that the cycle has a beginning? It's sort of a good question. In Buddhism, there's there's an end to samsara, but there's not a beginning. And Usually the two go together. If there's an end, then you can bet your bottom dollar that there was a beginning and vice versa. I don't know if anyone else has a problem with that, but the response, if there were a beginning then certainly they would also be clinging to a view. It's sort of like resorting to the most extreme way of refuting something. that's saying, well, you have a view. Any, Any view is wrong inherently. It's using the word drishti, which implies a wrong view. How can there be a beginning and an end for what is dependently arisen? Because the dependently arisen is not real. There's nothing that ever arose. That's the idea of dependent arising. It means non-arising. How could something real that was formerly created cease later on? If it was actually real, how could it ever be destroyed. The cosmos, being without the limits of a beginning or end, appears like an illusion. When an illusion arises or ceases, no one knows that it is an illusion. I'm sorry. I don't know if that's me or the text here. When an illusion rises or ceases, one... Sorry, one who knows that it is an illusion is not confused. Yeah, it is me. Those who do not know it is an illusion long for it. Those who see with their awareness that the realm of becoming is like a mirage and an illusion are not corrupted by views based on a beginning and an end. So this whole issue of beginning and end is uh, sort of a frivolous pursuit those who imagine that what is compounded arises and ceases do not understand the wheel of dependent arising anything compounded does not truly exist and so can't depend can't truly arise what arises dependent upon this or that does not arise through self-existence or is not self-existently arisen, and how can what is not arisen, by means of self-existence, be named arisen? If something is not uh, substantially arisen, or truly arisen, how can you say it's arisen? Since it is not a real entity, a compound entity that is stilled at peace, due to the exhaustion of the cause, is understood to be extinguished. That's a complicated idea. So, a compound entity that's produced by causes and conditions. Once the causes and conditions have ceased, that entity is at peace with itself and the world, so to speak. But how can what is not extinguished? No, uh, yes. But how can what is not extinguished through self-existence be named? Extinguished. So how, how can we say that something is extinguished, if it never really existed? Um, so he's sort of pointing out the fallacy of thinking that real things can be ex- uh, produced and extinguished, as well as the fallacy of thinking that unreal things can be produced and extinguished. And he calls all of that dependent arising, which is a little bit confusing, but it's a description for the fact that things are not self-existently arisen or appearing or, dis- or disappearing. Thus, nothing whatsoever is produced or ceases. Summary. Yet the path of arising and ceasing has been taught by the Buddhists for a practical purpose. So even though nothing has actually ever arisen or uh, passed away, relying upon arising and ceasing is the unerring way to, to tread the path of enlightenment. But by understanding arising, cessation is understood. If something is, arises, and must cease. By knowing cessation, impermanence is known by understanding impermanence. The true doctrine, the true Dharma, Sat Dharma, famous talk on Sat Dharma by Trungpa is understood. Those who have come to understand that dependent arising is devoid of real arising and cessation have ended the cycle of becoming that is propelled by views of real entities. Those who have come to understand that dependent arising is devoid of real arising. That dependent arising means there's no real arising or ceasing. Are the enlightened ones. Um, Those who hold that entities exist by self-existence are, due to their mistakes about existence and non-existence, dominated by afflictions. They are deceived by their own mind, thus, sorry, those who understand the nature of entities see that entities are impermanent, deceptive in nature, hollow, empty, selfless, clear, interesting, clear, uh, without a locus or objective support in the world, rootless with no fixed abode, totally arisen from root ignorance utterly bereft of beginning middle and end without a core like the banana tree trunk which is hollow at its core like the castle of the Gandharvas in the sky like an illusion thus this whole dreadful world appears so the the, uh, extended list of uh illusory phenomena. Let's see.
2: I was Without, curious about the, the word dreadful here. That, that, <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, perhaps uh, suffering? I don't know. Let's see if we can find it in this other version quickly. What is it? Verse four Twenty-seven. Twenty-six or twenty-seven. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. with no basis and no perceptual object, with no root and no foundation, truly arisen from the cause misknowledge, bereft of beginning, middle, and end. And then verse 27, oh, sorry, Yes, yeah, so 27, essenceless, like a plantain tree, similar to banana trees, resembling a fairy city. <laughs> Gandharvas are fairies, like an unbearable city of confusion. Is that the dreadful part?
3: Sounds like it.
1: That must be the dreadful world. Um, Life appears like an illusion. Brahma and the other gods appear real in this world, but they have been declared to be false to the Buddhas. By the Buddhas? That being so, what else can there be that is not also false? If Brahma and the other gods who appear in this world are false, what can possibly not be false? The world, blinded by ignorance, follows after the current of desire. But the wise are free of desire, and are virtuous. How can the worldly and the wise be viewed as equals? Seekers of reality should first be told, everything exists. This part I loved. Finally, we have like a little path. Um, Seekers of reality should first be told, everything exists. So we have the Sarvastavadan tradition encapsulated in the Tibetan version as Vaipashikas. Later, when they have comprehended the nature of things and are free of clinging. That's a stretch. That was a pun. Uh, Then teach them emptiness. Literally, clarity. Then teach them clarity. Vivek. Ta-ta.
3: So just a question when so they start by saying everything exists and then it says when they have comprehended the nature of things, then teach them emptiness. But isn't I mean, emptiness is the nature of things. So what nature of things are they talking about that they would understand before that?
1: Ah, very good point. Let's see what this other translation has to say about that. That's Maybe
2: it's first. like they get far enough into their uh, svarstavatn education that they realize, like, wait a second, some, something doesn't add up
1: here. I have a feeling it's more the uh, uh, the impermanent nature, you know, the, the marks, the three marks. But yeah,
3: I mean, I'm assuming Which, it means they've gone as far as they can go within that view. But I still don't quite get. The way they said it like you said if you have another alternative
1: i think the implication is that they understand that things are impermanent suffering and uh, impermanent and dissatisfactory it's verse 30
3: do you have it do you have 30 yes
1: yes the two seekers of reality at first at first you should declare everything exists once they understand things and grow detached Then, you may teach them freedom. Back to our version. Those who do not understand the meaning of emptiness, but rely merely on hearing the doctrine, and do not engage in meritorious acts, are lost. Actions, their fruit in the various realms of rebirth, have been fully explained by the Buddhas. The full knowledge of their nature Including their ultimate non arising, has been taught. Just as the conquerors have uttered I and mine for a practical purpose, so too have bodily aggregates, fields of the senses, and the five elements been uttered for a practical purpose. Expediency, skillful means, such practical designations spoken of as the great elements are contained within our consciousness but they are dissolved by knowing them. That's interesting. They are all false mental discriminations if treated as real entities. The buddhas have declared nirvana is the sole truth. How then could the learned imagine that the rest is not false? As long as the mind wavers, it remains under the dominion of Mara who is the lord of a sense-pleasure heaven. Interesting description. If that is so, why is it not admitted admitted that there is no fault in the knowledge of the non-arising of entities? Since the Buddhists have declared the world is conditioned by root ignorance, why is it not admitted that this world, i.e. the false world of multiple real entities, is merely created by the discrimination of entities? Fikalpa discriminating conceptuality. How could something that ceases when the root ignorance ceases not clearly be only a mental creation of that ignorance? The the negative, sort of double negative makes that sentence a little complicated, but it's more like something that ceases when the root ignorance ceases is clearly only a mental creation of ignorance. Right? How can something be understood to exist as self-existent when it arises due to a cause and does not endure without conditions, but disappears when those conditions are absent? There is nothing surprising when advocates of the doctrine of existence persist in holding entities to be real, but it is indeed surprising when those who affirm all is impermanent and who rely on the Buddha's path contentiously persist in clinging to entities. We know who who he's talking about, right? Which wise man will contentiously claim that this or that is real when after investigation nothing is observed of this or that? So if things are impermanent, then they're not substantially real. Uh, Let's see. And they can't be observed. Those who adhere to a doctrine of either the self or the cosmos as unconditioned, i.e. self-existent, are captivated by the views of permanence impermanence, and so forth. Those who affirm that entities are established as really existing are also overtaken by mistakes about permanence, and so forth. But those who are convinced that entities like a reflection of the moon and water are not real or unreal, but dependent, are not captivated by any views. Once one affirms that entities are real, severe and malignant views arise, very malignant. Those views give rise to attachment and hostility and from these disputes arise. That affirmation of self-existence is the cause of all views. Without it afflictions do not arise. Thus, if this is thoroughly understood, views and afflictions completely disappear. And how can this be thoroughly understood? By seeing dependent arising, the Buddha the best among knowers of reality, said what is born from conditions dependently exists, but from the ultimate point of view is not born, it only dependently exists. From attachment a series of graspings and disputes arise for those who are overwhelmed by false knowledge and who grasp the unreal as real. The the great souls, the Mahatmans, that's a weird translation, Mahatmans, the great-minded ones, usually it's translated as, hold no proposition. But
2: isn't it Atman? Atman, right? Atman's Atman.
1: It it is. uh, There's a a, a, uh, phrase, Mahatman, which which contracts the Atman part into, I don't know, it's usually translated as great-minded one.
3: Isn't that what, Mahatma Gandhi, where that came from?
1: Yes, like Mahatma Gandhi, exactly, yeah. So let's see how our other translation goes. Let's see, verse 50. Great souls. Okay. At least we got the soul, the Atman there. Great souls are beyond disputes. Interesting how Nagarjuna uses Atman. Isn't that a little bit like a tease or something? It's awesome. I'm reminded it's no of um, a Thich
2: Nhat Hanh poem where he talks about uh, putting his, it was during the Vietnam War, and he's so devastated and putting his face over his hands so his soul doesn't escape.
1: He put his, his face over his hands, I, I think maybe you mean the other way around, but. He put his hands over his face so his soul doesn't escape out of his
2: body because he's so devastated. I remember, Derek, you circulated this, and you said, what does it mean for an awakened being like Thich Han to use the term soul? Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's neat. That's neat. Thank you for remembering that. Cool. So what did we conclude? The same sort of thing as this, right?
2: I think it was a rhetorical question, and I don't know if it concluded anything, but perhaps you have a
1: conclusion to share. <laughs> it seems that they also use it as not a uh, ontological term, you know, and just a sort of uh, um, a reference to one's life force, basically.
3: I was going to say it, it reminds me of some there's qigong exercises where you specifically like. Put your hands over certain orifices of the body to prevent the jing energy from escaping, and so I was thinking that you know that's that makes more sense if you're talking about a kind of a energetic phenomena. But um, who knows?
1: That's interesting. Gives you another understanding of wrapping, I guess. Wrappers. Um, from let's see. The great souls, there we are. The great souls hold no proposition, paksha, no like thesis, and have no dispute. How can there be a counter proposition to those who hold no proposition? By taking any stand whatsoever when it's caught by the afflictions. I'm sorry. By taking any stand whatsoever when it's caught by afflictions. We call that spineless usually, right? If you don't take any stand, you're being spineless. But here he's saying that's good. I have no opinion. Right? But but those whose mind is free of any standpoint are not captured. How can't the strong poison of the afflictions arise in those whose mind takes a stand? Living like ordinary people, those who take a point of view will also be caught by the afflictions, just as an ignorant man is attached to a reflection that he thinks is real. So too the cosmos, because of its errors, trapped in the cage of objects. The great souls who see with the eye of knowledge that entities are like a reflection, do not get stuck in the mire of entities. The ignorant are attached to, invisible, to visible form. Those in the middle become detached from forms, but those of the highest awareness are liberated by knowing the nature of visible form. One becomes attached to something by thinking it is pleasant. By turning away from it, one becomes free of desires. But by seeing it is empty, like a phantasm, and, and again, he's translating this term clear as empty, which is really interesting. I have never I never was aware that Nagarjuna used this term, vivikita, and had, that it had the meaning of empty. I'm not familiar with that. That's cool. Clear. But by seeing it as clear, like a phantasm, i.e. an illusory person, one attains nirvana. Those who understand entities and non-entities are not disturbed by the afflictions due to false knowledge. If one has a point of view, one becomes passionate or dispassionate. But the great souls, being free of any point of view, are neither passionate nor dispassionate, have no emotional reactions, nor do they intentionally avoid such reactions. How do you like that? Just like a bump on a log, Right? Do you know who who used that analogy in a positive way? Like a rock? Sort of like a rock, yeah. But he actually said, be like a log. Well, but there a, was Shanti oh, Deva. Shanti Deva. Shanti Deva. Yeah. says, be like a log. <laughs> what a guy. When you're in the company of uh, other people, be like a log. So you don't become attracted to any of them.
2: And for Rinpoche also, um, you know, he spoke positively of the Ratna family, you know, the five Buddha families. So he described like the image of the Ratna family as like a rotting log in the forest that was like a home to all
1: of these insects and moss and fungi and so forth. That's a very different use of the log than uh, Shanti Deva's <laughs> log. All right, I'll log and, that. Then there's the Yule log. <laughs> You'll log that. Take that to the 10th to the log. Didn't, uh, was it
5: Art Gar- Garfunkel or um, uh, Simon? What was his name?
3: I am uh, a rock.
5: Yes, I am a rock. Exactly. I am an island. I am a rock.
1: Didn't That's what I rock. was saying.
5: Didn't yeah. He said I am a rock. He said
1: I am a log. No. He said both. He said I am a rock. A log is not a rock. I'm taking a position.
6: No, they
1: are
6: very, very comparable. Do you guys know Log Lady from You're uh, Twin Peaks?
1: Quibbling, yes. Log Lady, Log Lady from. Do you Twin remember
6: Log Peaks? Lady?
1: No, who is Log? Oh no? man.
6: Log Lady like consults a log, and has many like uh, important premonitions that come from this log that she carries around with her.
1: Oh, I can't. I didn't remember that from Twin Peaks. And a you know, he's a, he's a
6: meditator, so there may actually be a... Uh,
1: yeah, he's, a he's into TM, big time. I know. <laughs> oh,
5: that was in Twin Peaks? I thought you saw it on
1: YouTube. David no, no. Yeah. He's in a P. wacko. <laughs> he's a wacko dude. <laughs> yeah. What a great show that was at the time. It was like one of the first like, out there, don't know what's going on TV shows. Anyway, series. Um, those who consider the discernment of emptiness and yet are still unmoved by a wavering mind will cross the ocean of existence that seethes with the afflictions. So, you know, uh, Nagarjuna is still, like like Shantideva, they're still in this period of uh, pre-Vajrayana where afflictions are very real and... Uh, the uh, enticements of desire are very terrible.
2: But but also note that he uh, he he doesn't say that you have to get rid of your waiver in
1: mind. No, I like that. Thank you. I like yeah. that. You They're just have to be moved by, by it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I forgot to and, mention that.
5: Yeah, I I I thought that was an interesting metaphor about um, crossing the ocean of existence. You know.
1: Well that's a common that's a famous metaphor. Yes, but but this
5: goes way back. So was this the origin of that metaphor?
1: No, no, no. The Buddha uses it in the sutras over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to well, literature.
5: we're coming to, we're, we're coming in the last verse. In fact, the last two the last three words of the are what the, yeah, are, the, yeah, That's the answer your, to your question. <laughs>
1: Through the worthiness of this treatise, may all beings accumulate a store like a, a, a Walmart, maybe like a Walmart of merit and knowledge, and by these may they attain the two Buddha bodies that arise from merit and wisdom. Here, hear. Okay, now we we had one more text that I circulated was the 20 verses on the Mahayana. The people... It's
5: not Walmart, it's Dollar Tree.
1: (laughs) Dollar Tree. Let's see. Okay, so um, we got 20 verses here.
0: I'll put it up on the screen. Oops. Hmm.
1: It's a little summary of the Mahayana. The best word in there is summary. So, homage to Manjushri, Kumara Buddha. Kumara Buddha is the every youthful Manjushri. Uh, So it's a special version of Manjushri who's always youthful. But on the other hand, then you hear that Manjushri is always youthful. So it could just be talking about the fact that Manjushri is ever youthful. And it's sort of a slight towards old people. So I I personally am offended by it, but I'm not going to hold any views. I bow down to the all-powerful Buddha. Whose mind is free of attachment, who in his compassion and wisdom has taught the inexpressible. He's expressed the inexpressible. In truth there's no birth. And surely, I don't know who Shirley is, but he does like to talk about him. Surely there's no cessation or liberation. The Buddha is like the sky. And all beings have that nature. So all beings have the same nature as the Buddha. Neither samsara nor nirvana exists, but all is a complex continuum with an intrinsic face of void. I like the face of void. Uh, The use of void for shunya is a little bit odd, but some people still like to do that, I guess. Uh, The object of ultimate awareness, and that's an interesting phrase, that um, ultimate mind can have an object. Normally we think, these days we think of uh, ultimate mind as being non-dual, subject and object having collapsed into a non-dual self-reflexive awareness. But uh, we see other ways of expressing things, including the object of ultimate awareness here. The nature of all things appears like a reflection, pure and naturally peaceful or quiescent, with a non-dual identity of suchness, ta-ta-ta. The common mind imagines, imagines a self where there is nothing at all, and it conceives of emotional states, happiness, suffering, and equanimity. The six states of being in samsara, the happiness of heaven, the suffering of hell, all are false creations, figments of mind. Likewise, the ideas of bad action causing old age, disease, and death, and the idea that virtue leads to happiness, are mere ideas, unreal notions. Like an artist frightened by the devil, he paints the sufferer in some sorrows terrified by his own imagination. You forget that sense, you know, where you like start worrying about things that. We totally make up. Like a man caught in quicksand, thrashing and struggling about, so beings drown in the mess of their own thoughts. Mistaking fantasy for reality causes an experience of suffering. Mind is poisoned by interpretation of consciousness of form. That was an an odd, is poisoned by interpretation of consciousness of form. So there was another version I sent around, let's see. This one says, the feeling of misery is experienced by imagining things where, in fact, it has no existence. Beings are tortured by the poison of false notions regarding the object and its knowledge. Nothing about form in there. Well, maybe this other translation is better. Dissolving figment and fast fantasy with a mind of compassionate insight, remain in perfect awareness in order to help beings. The other version has seen these helpless beings with a compassionate heart, which should perform the practices of the highest knowledge for the benefit of them. So, acquiring conventional virtue freed from the web of interpretive thought, insurpassable. Now, is insurpassable correct grammatically? Isn't it supposed to be unsurpassable? Understanding is gained as Buddha, friend to the world. Or, having acquired requisites thereby and getting unsurpassable Bodhi, one should become a Buddha, the friend of the world, being freed from the bondage of false notions. I like this other version. Did you guys like the the other
0: version? Hmm.
1: Read
6: it again, if you please.
1: Okay, hold on. Once. I mean,
6: the other translation. Yeah, the
1: other translation is, having acquired requisites thereby and getting unsurpassable bodhi, one should um, become a Buddha, the friend of the world, being freed from the bondage of false notions.
3: I mean, they're similar. They're just kind of rearranging and... Where's the other one from? What's the source of that other one?
1: The other one is in a book called the Mahayana Vimshaka of Nagarjuna. So it's a tiny little publication that just has this three-page translation and then some footnotes. I think it has the Sanskrit. And it's by Vidu Vidu Shekara Bhattacharya. Anyway. Knowing the relativity of all the ultimate truth is always seen, dismissing the idea of beginning, middle, and end, the flow is seen as emptiness, the flow. Okay. He who realizes the tra- this is the other version. He who realizes the transcendental truth, knowing the pratitya samudpada, knows the world to be Shunya, devoid of beginning, middle, or end.
3: So, so he that one avoided the use of an entity flow. sort of
1: term. Of yeah, flow, the right. flow, the flow.
3: Probably better to avoid that. <laughs>
1: so all samsara nirvana is seen as it is empty and insubstantial, naked and changeless, eternally quiescent and illumined. As the figments of a dream dissolve upon waking, so the confusion of samsara fades away and enlightenment. Idealistic things... Idealizing sorry, things of no substance as eternal, substantial and satisfying, shrouding them in a fog of desire, the round of existence arises. The nature of beings is unborn, yet commonly beings are conceived to exist. Both beings and their ideas are false beliefs. It is nothing but an artifice of mind, this birth into an illusory becoming into a world of good and evil action with good or bad rebirth to follow. When the wheel of mind caught ceases to turn, all things come to an end. So there is nothing inherently substantial and all things are utterly pure. This great ocean of samsara full of delusive thought can be crossed in the boat universal approach what is that that must be the mahayana
3: yeah can you read the verse 19 from the other source also
1: yeah so let's see 19 When the wheel of mind here the other source says it is due to thinking the things which have no independent nature as eternal atman and pleasant that this ocean of existence appears to one who is enveloped by the darkness of attachment and ignorance. That's rather different. So twenty in the alternate one. Who can reach the other side of the ocean of samsara, which is full of water of false notions, without getting into the great vehicle? This great ocean of samsara, full of delusive thought, can be crossed in the boat universal approach. Who can reach the other shore without it? Okay. So that's that one, close the current text. So, uh, briefly, looking at the fall and thereafter, if I can distract your minds for a moment, I'm uh, thinking and hoping of doing, going through the following uh, texts in the fall. Where did they go? Uh, Let's see.
0: Oh, Hmm. they disappeared.
1: Science and Philosophy in the Indian Buddhist Classics, Volume 1, The Physical World, born by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, oh, conceived, sorry, given birth to. Edited by his main translator, Thutton chimpa There's no author, right? conceived by, edited. So who's the author? And Then here we have the compendium compilation committee. That's catchy, right? Very catchy. Chair, editor, and members, uh, editor. It's like, who's the author of the book? Anyway, I'll I'll, I'll get over that.
3: It's a non-existent entity.
1: There you go. It's not truly arisen. So we got uh, first the overview, systems of classification, methods of inquiry and reasoning, and what's called the collected topics. So the collected topics is the translation of a term in Tibetan that is used to describe the uh, preliminary text that one studies in the shadra, the traditional monastic curriculum, or university curriculum rather, not monastic, the university curriculum developed in Tibet, before one studies the Abhidharma Kosha, the treasury of Abhidharma by Vasubandhu, and sort of lays down the basics. Noble objects, phenomena in general, the essential nature of physical entities, the five senses and their faculties, mental object forms, causal primary elements, non-associated factors, cause and effect, unconditioned phenomena, and uh, ascertainable objects, how subtle particles are posited, how coarse matter is formed, whether indivisible particles exist. These are all very uh, compelling topics. Time. Do you guys know the joke about uh, the farmer and the pig, the special pig, and like what's... Oh, never mind. The definition of time, positing the three times, so going through time and so
6: Tell time us, tell pig. us the joke. <laughs>
1: and well, f- first we'll go through this, and then we'll come back to the joke about the the pig, uh, the cosmos and its inhabitants. This is sort of unusual to put in here, and uh, but interesting, the uh, cosmology in the Abhidharma system, the cosmology in the Kala Chakra, which is the culmination of the Vajrayana presentations, how worlds end. <laughs> Let's see, Trump, uh, abortion.
3: Not with a bang, but with a whimper.
1: Yeah. Uh, the dancing of celestial bodies, the measurement. enumeration, and and then I don't know why they put this in, but it's sort of cool, fetal development and the channels, winds, and drops like a little, you know, you've gone through all this basic Abhidharma stuff suddenly you get a little glimpse into the essence of Vajrayana the development of the fetus and the sutras, in the Kala Chakra in Buddhist medical texts the subtle body that consists of prana, nadi, and bindu, channels, winds, and drops and how they're described in the medical texts, and then the brain in medical texts, and the relation of mind and body. And the famous 18 topics of Chapachukhi Sadgay. So, I mean, is that exciting? Like you can't wait, or what? <laughs> I hope so. I'm sort of excited by it. It's like um I, I it uh it's a commentary on these little uh, very obscure textbooks that have just definitions and uh being of a thick nature that I am I neglected to uh send myself on the laptop that as well tonight to show you that but um we'll look at the at the uh root text produced. Each, each school, each monastic, uh, each university, each Shadra has, generally has its own, uh, version of the collected topics, which is a very short text that's literally just a compilation of definitions of the various things that we saw in that table of contents. And then they write these commentaries, the teachers of their Shedra will write their own commentary to explain these things. and So here we have a commentary by all these Tibetan Geshe's uh, um, Galukpa from the Galukpa school. And so they have Sermay, Drepung Namgyal. So there's these various monasteries. ganden, Drepung, Gonden Drepung, Gomong. So these there's three main Galuppa monasteries. Drepung. And uh, Sertung, Serch uh, something like that. Um, and so we're going to get the version from these guys, which is not going to be significantly different than any other version. But um, I will, su- you can purchase a very nice, short little uh, collected topics, root text from the Tartar publications and I'll circulate a link to that uh, it's rather expensive and uh, so I think I'll just share bits and pieces of it as we go through the commentary um, and then uh, after that one the idea is to go through the second volume of this which goes through this thing called the mind sort of an uh, aphorism for something that we know nothing about and we have the nature of mind the sense consciousness conceptual non-conceptual valid and mistaken minds we have the 51 mental factors going through the, the standard lists and descriptions of those gross and subtle minds in the shared traditions means the sutra and tantra common to both and then gross and subtle minds in highest yoga tantra which is really uh, interesting that they just mix the tantra view, once again, into these sutra presentations. In the in the highest yoga tantra, the uh, gross, the subtlest mind is the, the mind of clear light bliss. Mind and its objects, how mind engages objects, and the sevenfold typology of cognition, which is Includes things like um, self-awareness and other awareness, um, unconsciousness and consciousness, and so forth. And then we go through inferential reasoning, uh, But e- how evidence becomes correct or, or fallacious. And uh, we have a peek at a little text by Dignaga, famous text on reasoning called the drum of a wheel of reasonings by them other sometimes called the wheel drum of reasonings now why they why he uses that tie that image of a a wheel drum or a drum of a wheel i don't know you can you can figure that out for yourself training the mind very neat you know once like in the first volume they added this stuff about the, the fetus and the cosmology here this this these parts are not this section is not traditional to the low, the uh, classifications of mind literature. But it's very cool how the mind is trained, little section presentation of uh, shamatha and Vipassana, and mindfulness meditation, and, um, and conclusion going through the, the idea of a self. Minor Buddhist topic. Yeah, very small little appendix sort of topic and uh, so this is volume two and then volume three comes out uh, this december and goes through the tenets of the various schools and uh, so that then gives us gives you three of the four main topics in the shadra curriculum that have these sort of primers the fourth one is the path and they have these little primer the uh Introductory text called "Grounds and Paths," which in Tibetan is "salam," like salami. So, um, so hopefully that I I uh, I'll repeat this again when we get there. But I went through this. I went to Natarta Institute, which is a program created by uh, Punle Primbichay and some senior students of Trung Primbichay many many years ago. And subsequently owned and continued by Punarbhamshay and his students, and gives a wonderfully uh, thorough uh, presentation or, or a, a curriculum of study of the what's called the eight great texts of the Kagyu tradition, which are the five Shadra uh, texts, and then uh, three texts by Jamgon Kongtrul that span Sutra and Tantra. And, um, I, um, uh, it might be three texts by Rongjung Dorje, the third karma, but I'm a little rusty on that. But anyway, um, it's, it's a great program and it happens out in Vancouver, BC, which is a beautiful area. And in the summertime, it's, it's like going to summer camp and if you want to like, you go to uh, an adult summer camp and learn the dharma i can't recommend it enough and they teach you debate they teach you how to do debate and have uh, you then learn how to do debates with people um, in the formal style so but but like it immediately opened up to me this uh very different way of understanding all of this dharma literature that we read in arjuna and so forth uh, by, by understanding what, um, by going through the definitions and, and like, um, uh, uh, it starts off with what is the definition of a thing, which I, I just thought was the greatest thing that I, I ever saw. <laughs> so nobody ever told me what a thing was. I don't know about you guys, but it's one of those things that we just like assume we all know what it is, but... They actually define what a thing is revolutionary anyway um it's almost at our witching hour. Should we have like a toast or something? Do people have their their drinks any so uh people wanna say anything like spontaneous poems about emptiness are fully appropriate at this point doha's uh emptiness and form, things like that. Actually just
3: one, Can I ask one question about all of what you just went through? Which texts are, are we actually, like is there?
1: The besides, first one, the first volume uh, of that.
3: Volume one, not not also two?
1: Well, We'll do that in the next course.
3: Okay, I just was trying to figure out what how much of that was actually going to be
1: in this yeah, one. Yeah, I, th- I think that'll be, uh, this first so, volume will be one course. So basically
3: just the collected topics.
1: And, and then
3: this Science and Philosophy, yeah. in Volume 1. Yeah. Thank you.
1: And uh, I'll, I'll circulate various handouts and stuff to supplement our enjoyment of the. Right. The so
3: sorry for handouts. the practical, let the Dohas begin.
1: Yeah, yeah. Pul- or uh, pulverizing categories, you know, whatever has whatever you might have been inspired to by. So first versions. line,
3: my mind has been pulverized.
1: <laughs> if only I could find my mind.
6: Um, thank you to Derek and other fellow dorks for doing the <laughs> Dharma thing. I appreciate Chris mm-hmm. and Cynthia and all of you guys Especially the super nerds, because you ask great questions and you have all these relevant or relevant, relevant or relevant questions that I really appreciate. So cheers.
1: Thank you, Caitlin. Here's to Dorky relevance. Thank you all for participating in this. Um, what what do you guys think of, like, Nagarjuna and his writings? What do you find? What do you, you know, is it, you know, how did, like, what did you expect beforehand, you know, delving into Nagarjuna, and then what, have, what do you come away with? I'm just sort of curious, the experience of that. Because Nagarjuna is, like, cranked up for years. You've been, you know, hearing about Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna. Right. So now we'd like went through a good bit of his writings. All like, by the way, like almost all of these six texts could be, would be like a hundred pages probably in English. I don't know, maybe a little more thoughts.
6: I um, love, like loved reading Nagarjuna and thought it was very, I had to read it really slowly, but as long as I gave over to that, I, I actually thought it was, um, I got sort of more out of it on a non-intellectual level than I was expecting, and I found it not not more accessible than I was expecting exactly. But if I really took my time with it, I found it to be extremely. He just hits the nail on the head like so perfectly, and it. I did and I did like just sort of getting to the core of things, knowing that the commentaries we read and stuff all then pro- proliferate from there. So. I felt like it was like going straight to the bullseye and um, totally loved it.
1: That's so cool. So there's like a, ideally there's like this process of going through it in detail and and understanding as, as much as we can of the detail. And then ideally like going through it again and like um, reading it less detailed, but like letting the, the message of it seep in to our mind, you know. And ideally, that's that's what it's supposed to do. Is it's supposed to like um, at, at, normally, as we read things, we try to like piece things together and and like come up with like what is the author saying and how do how do I think about that and and um, and it's sort of like. Ideally, with Nagarjuna, it's like one one um, moment after another of groundlessness. I'm just like, well, it can't be this way, and it can't be that way. And, and um, you know, ideally it leaves your mind suspended without, without having views, you know, uh, basically eliminating all views or all sense of like, can I figure out what's going on? Can I put together a coherent idea or view of the world? I don't know. Mary Beth.
4: I was struck by Drishti, that idea of like that being not a good thing and how like in yoga you you talk about using that to stabilize when you're balancing using that as a focus so that you don't fall. Mm,
1: It's more of a visual thing though, isn't it?
4: Yeah. But just like thinking of Drishti is not a positive thing. It's a thing that we use to stabilize just life in general. Like I have a view about politics. So I vote a certain way. Yeah, I have a yeah. view about food, so I eat a certain way. It like, I don't have to think about how I eat because I have a view. I can just sort of like go back to that like stabilizing view. Ref,
1: reference point. Yeah. And that's sort of, of
4: that That's the problem being yeah. fixed on that attack. That's
1: great. Yeah. <clears throat> that's cool. In yoga, when you're doing your handstand, you, you pick a point across the room, right? <laughs> your headstand
4: you're just trying to stand on one leg
1: that's the other time yeah that's very helpful to pick a point in in space as your reference as your that's fun that's funny that it has that difference what else anyone else
2: i thought that the uh the the rapid fire fire uh, pace of this class, uh, presented a lot of challenges, um, sort of like when you're riding in a train and you're, you're going by like, uh, you're going through the woods and you're like trying to like, (laughs) trying to watch the scenery and it's just like, you know, by you, (laughs) you know,
1: um, yeah, for me, it was, it was frustrating that way too. And I kept thinking, wow, maybe we should have picked one text and gone through it very slowly and carefully.
2: At the same time, it was, I mean, uh, especially contrasting two texts like the Mula Karakas and the Ratnavali, It's like, they're, they're so, the style is so different. And it, it's interesting to see um, kind of his range. Yeah,
0: um, yeah depending it's
2: amazing. On the I would and love to, uh, s- sorry. The, the, the Kind of what I'm, what I'm left with, with, with Nagarjuna is... Um, Kind of like how do you take the show on the road, you know? So we un we understand that um drishtis are un untenable um in a philosophical sense. But you know, at a certain point you you have to get off your meditation cushion and, and you know go to work, deal with your family, and so forth. And it's like um he doesn't give you a lot of uh practical path uh advice. Uh, on 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 balancing the relative with with the ultimate view
1: well except in the rot Novel-y. except in the rot Novel-y. yeah which yeah. is so different in that sense but all of the other texts are, are like you're saying yeah
2: and then uh and then the the other thing i I've, i found really striking about him is you know i i we're really used to thinking about Madhyamaka in uh with with Yogacara as like a foil to it and, and they're kind of like being a dialogue between those two. But of course, Yogacara hasn't hasn't even come around yet by the time he's writing. And, and we always think of this kind of like progression where Yogacara, Madhyamaka is improving on the views of Yogacara, but it, it, you know, chronologically, it didn't come out that way. So I, I was kind of like yearning for him to address the mind in a really robust way. And it, he doesn't really, he didn't really do a ton of that. Yeah. I, I find that very kind of surprising.
1: Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Interesting observations. Thanks. I, I've always wanted someone to to do like a um a linguistic analysis of his different texts and see does the does the terminology he uses is that consistent in the text or the phraseology and see in that way which texts seem to have linguistic coherence as being by the same author,
3: is that not? Hasn't that been done at all? Because I, I always assumed that that's part of the basis of these scholarly acceptances and rejections.
1: They they do. They, I've never seen any. They they probably do it themselves, but I've never seen anybody present it in detail. The, the only things did, that I you... see presented are are uh, uh, references to historical uh, reference points. Sorry, Kevin. No,
5: but I was just thinking, wouldn't that um, uh, depend on the translations and you'd have to go
1: the- you'd have to work with the Sanskrit, so you'd have to use the text where the Sanskrit exists. Right. Because yes, otherwise it, like like, to evening. do it in English is would be oh, right. hey
3: Derek, don't you need more what? projects? You could do it. yeah. Well.
1: Yeah.
6: yeah, I'll do a pro, I'll do a ProQuest search for this. <laughs> it's
5: it's like, a great yeah, idea. It it's really even, would be even, wonderful. Right. Even doing it in Sanskrit, inevitably, it depends on the interpretation of the Sanskrit. And, you know, that's a big part of any analysis of his style and his use of terms.
1: Yeah, like the Radnavali versus the Mulla Badyamaka Karakas. You know, are they really written by the same guy? assuming people are consistent in their writing to some extent, you know, they're...
6: Yeah, like grammatical quirks. I do feel like, I I bet somebody's looked into this, like, yeah, little things that would indicate it was the same author or not. Yeah, this would be interesting to see.
2: Yeah. yeah. But even, I mean, even a modern author, you know, uh, writing an academic paper versus, you know, writing an email to Joe Biden, uh, you you know, you're going to speak differently.
1: Yeah, a letter to the king. That's great. I like that the letter. It's called to code switching. <laughs> That's great. Anyone else? Anything else? Thank you. Thank you, guys, very much for for uh, your interest in this material and for your perseverance and for your generosity. I got uh, these emails with all sorts of money indicated even though it's totally... Oh, right. Oh, oh,
3: yeah. Brent is here. I was just saying, I don't see his face, but I see he's
1: yeah. in, yeah,
3: in, in visible form.
1: Well, thank God for Brent, huh?
6: <laughs> Hello, <yes>. You're
3: here.
1: <laughs> so thank you. Let's dedicate the merit and, and call it an, an evening and a course. Um, but its merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great East, May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. <laughs> I forgot to say a couple two qu- very quick things about the compendium, that book that I'm hoping to use for the fall. One is that uh, the introduction by the Dalai Lama is really excellent. And the other is that this uh, gentleman, John Dunn, wonderful Buddhist scholar who uh, and practitioner, who many of you probably are familiar with, he writes introductions to each of the parts of the books that are really helpful. And uh, lastly, these are the the first publications of their of their kind in English. There's little scattered pieces of these types of of primer texts here and there published in other books, but these are the first like coherent uh, presentations of that of the Shadra system. So it's very cool that they came out finally, very timely. Thank you all very much. Have a great rest of your summer and i look forward to seeing you probably in like the second week of september or so May, i think maybe the first the second week of september the first class just sort of have an open like hello how's everybody what have you been up to thing take care thank you thank Emily, you derek hosting thank, us. You. thank so you guys well.
0: have a good rest thank you derek thank you, too. Bye.